This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today, uh, I, I'm going to be talking about uh, some recent research with Congo Basin hunter-gatherers. I've been fortunate enough uh, for the most of my adult life to be able to live with uh, one of the few remaining uh, hunter-gatherer groups uh, sort of in the world. So the groups I'm going to be talking about today, uh, primarily the Aka of the Central African Republic and the northern part of Congo, as well as the FA uh, over here in the Demo- uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. The Aka are net hunters, primarily net hunters. The FA are primarily uh, bow and arrow, arrow hunters that... In terms of sort of ethnographic background about about these groups, that uh, very briefly, they have particular uh, what I call foundational schema ways of thinking and feeling that pervade many different domains of life. The first one here, in terms of they are fiercely egalitarian. Uh, they have a number of mechanisms, cultural mechanisms that promote uh, egalitarianism. So somebody starts to draw attention to himself or herself, they um, have a number of ways of teasing and joking in order to reduce that amount uh, of, of uh, attention that one might try to draw to oneself. I mean, one of the things after many, many years, I sort of realized that the way of life that we have here is is very much different. There we're reminded on a daily basis of the differences. We get, you know, we have performance, you know, we have perform- performance evaluations, we have grades, uh, kids get smiley faces or, or not. We ever, somebody's always better or worse than others. We, and that's part of our daily life here. And among the hunter-gatherers here in the Congo Basin, that you, you're reminded in terms of how much everybody is equal. I mean, people do rank, um, but at the same time, they have cultural mechanisms by which they promote this egalitarianism. And so you have gender egalitarianism. This is a woman on the net hunt. She has a spear, she has a big knife, and she has a baby on the side. Um, also, uh, age egalitarianism, which generally means that you do not have respect for elders. It depends which way you want to look at it. And that in terms of another big foundational schema is that you have respect for autonomy. And this sort of goes with the egalitarianism that you do not intervene with somebody else uh, in terms of when they're doing something. So here you have kids with big machetes, uh, and you do not intervene as they try these out uh, unless they hurt themselves or hurt others. Um, in terms of weaning, who decides when the timing of weaning? It's the infants, the children who decide when weaning happens, not the mother. In terms of where do you go sleep? The children decide where you go sleep. In terms of adults, that in when you live in an Aka camp, there are changes every day. And the, somebody leaves, somebody goes, so, and you have this respect for autonomy. Uh, the last part is that you have extensive sharing, and that's the part that I'm going to focus on today. The, the idea here is that these foundational schema, or you may want to think of them as core values in the culture, that uh, they pervade many different domains of life. In terms of sharing, there's been a lot of research in, in anthropology and other disciplines about sharing child care um, in terms of maternal care, sharing food. But there hasn't been much research in terms of sharing information and, uh, and knowledge. And this prosociality and sharing are, are quite clearly part of human nature. And 
these three domains, from my perspective, likely co-evolved in human evolution. Just as one example, uh, that in, you know, we have a cooperative breeding hypothesis of Sarah here, but certainly that there is a learning that it's involved with parenting, so that these things pro- likely uh, co-evolved. The, I'm going to just talk about two topics today, um, allomaternal nursing and teaching in infancy. I need that iceberg slide <laughs> um, that we do not have one article in terms of human allomaternal nursing. I mean, we know about seals and more about allomaternal uh, nursing in seals and rodents than we do in humans. Uh, so if there are graduate students or others out there who want a topic, this is, this is it. So um, in this particular study, we, uh, it's a very uh, exploratory study. There, where we had these behavioral data from focal follow observations, Steve Wynn and I, um, and we simply asked some empirical questions, how often does it occur, who's doing it, and what sort of context it takes place. A little dense here, but in terms of you know, how often does it occur, uh, the first sort of interesting result, um, here we have the FA here that I mentioned, uh, and the ACA, and then the, the neighbors of the Acre, the Ngandu farmers. Uh, but sort of the first interesting result here is that most all of the allomaternal nursing occurs early, occurs in early infancy. Um, here you have the majority of the infants receiving allomaternal uh, nursing. Obviously you have an enormous range. By one year old, it's gone. Okay, so you have allomaternal nursing early generally before uh, four months. The same thing for the ACA. Uh, and then um, by nine to 10 months, it has decreased. And by one year of age, it's pretty much gone. This is the work of Paula, uh, Paula Ivy Henry here. This is the work of Steve Wynn, and these are uh, my data. Um, the other sort of uh, pattern here is that the, the Ngandu farmers, the neighbors of the ACA, they do not practice it because they have a cultural belief, uh, a particular cultural model in which they see that, that uh, if another woman nurses your infant, that it could get a taboo food and cause the infant to get sick and die. So that is a particular cultural practice in which they uh, do not practice it. Who provides it? Who provides allomaternal uh uh, nursing, generally they're biological kin, genetic kin. It can be either paternal or maternal. I mean, not insignificantly, you have around 10, 12% getting al- that the aloe mothers are uh, not biological kin. Uh, but the interesting sort of result uh, to me, I mean, was that you have in terms of the aloe mothers that you have a good percentage of postmenopausal women. Okay, postmenopausal grandmothers. Uh, here you have postmenopausal uh, grandma um, uh, nursing an infant here. And so that there's a good literature out there about relactation. Um, and uh, my wife, Bonnie, uh, who's also an anthropologist and nurse, started to test and that the younger postmenopausal Women clearly had milk, but as you get into the 70s, that was not the case. Um, in terms of some of the context of allomaternal nursing, mother availability. Uh, when mother's out working, 
this is when alimaternal nursing is, is more likely, but they're also in among the ACA. This is three to four month olds that the mother's just right there nearby and alimaternal nursing takes place um, uh, by an, another woman here. Also that uh, more alimaternal holding, uh, you had more alimaternal nursing so that if an allo mother held more, they also nursed more. Another interesting result from this very uh, exploratory study is that I went out and asked my friends working with hunter-gatherers whether or not allomaternal nursing existed in their, particular, in their particular group. So here you have all these different forager groups and whether it was norm- normative means here that I'm sort of defining it as that most infants receive a good percentage of uh, allomaternal nursing. So 80, 90% of the infants receive allomaternal nursing. And one thing I should mention about the frequency I discussed a little bit earlier that when you talk to the mothers that the numbers are much higher. The mothers say that their kids are always allonursed, okay? Uh, whereas we don't always capture it because we only do 10 hours of, of observation. But the interesting result here is that, that the groups living in the tropical forest here were much more likely to be have normative allomaternal nursing by comparison to the hunter-gatherer groups that lived in dry savanna, woodland, or, or desert. And the, the sort of result here, uh, sort of the question that Katie sort of mentioned that in terms of the immunological or the uh, probiotic kind of potential, potential benefits of an allomaternal nurse in a nursing in a particular environment where you have high prevalence of infectious and parasitic diseases. Uh, we, I, we also conducted this sort of cross-cultural study of anthropologists who, have, you know, who did general descriptions of cultures, and they may have described allomaternal nursing. And when, in these particular instances, generally they describe allomaternal nursing occurring in emergency situations. The mother's sick, the mother dies, the mother's ill. Uh, and the same thing is also true from what we call, we call these melt uh, kinship uh, cultures, uh, where if you do, if a woman does nurse another, an infant from another woman, that that infant becomes part of that kinship system of that mother. Political economic inequality, this is wet nursing, where you pay for, where the, the group in power, generally the upper class, the upper caste, the upper clan, uh, hire somebody in the lower groups to nurse for them. And the other sort of context is in colostrum, you have many cultures around the world that believe that the first colostrum is dangerous. The Akab do this, the Efe do this, the Ingan, all of them do this, that, that they express the colostrum into the fire because they, even though we talk about it here um, as gold, but um, liquid gold, but uh, here that in many cultures it is expressed into the fire. So that in terms of allomaternal nursing, you have many factors that uh, are contributing to the diversity that we observe here. Uh, we were not able, there, is a, there are a lot of hypotheses about there, out there about reciprocity uh, here with uh, cross-nursing that we find here in the United States sometimes today. Uh, we don't find, ev- the mothers are not talking about reciprocity. And also there's no evidence in terms of the stressed infant that 
you know, uh, infants that fuss or cry more get more nursing from others. There, there is no evidence of that in this partic- in our particular studies here. I also should mention here, since I just sort of threw it in here, La Leche League, in terms, of, uh, does not promote uh, alimaternal nursing. They think it's potentially psychologically and and health wise, it's not uh, beneficial. And, and and obviously, this is a cultural belief um, in terms of a view of alimaternal nursing. The next topic I just quickly like to talk about, this is a sort of ongoing research, and this is teaching in infancy. In terms of sharing knowledge, that there's this sort of debate um, between social cultural anthropologists and cognitive scientists. In cultural anthropology, in cult- many social anthropologists say teaching does not exist in small-scale cultures. Um, here, this is a recent book, The Anthropology of Learning. This is a, a chapter by David Lancey. He starts out, The Absence of Teaching. Uh, here you have the cognitive sciences, on other hand, saying teaching is a natural part of, of ability of humans. Okay? You have Gergli and Sebra talking about one type of teaching, which they call natural pedagogy, that you find in infancy, uh, where Individuals use what they call ostensive signals, pointing, looking at, use of personal name, use of mother ease, face-to-face kind of interaction to draw attention to particular knowledge uh, for, a, for an infant. So this debate, you have this debate between social anthropologists and cognitive scientists about the existence of teaching. Uh, but teaching is very important for human evolution. Tomasello, and in a number of different publications, Tomasello and Kruger and many others, identify teaching as potentially a very key factor in terms of human evolution. In terms of, you have three, fa- three sort of factors, teaching language and accurate imitation that led to the high fidelity, okay? Sort of precise copying and learning of particular skills, knowledge, technology, and that higher fidelity stays, if you have higher fidelity, it stays in a population longer this staying in a population longer increases the chance for an innovation to be introduced. This leads to what is, what is really defined in terms of, we have many animal species that have culture, but what humans have is cumulative culture, and that this, these particular factors here contribute to, uh, to this cumulative culture. You have cumulative culture, you have an increased number of socially transmitted traits, and this increases the importance of teaching. Okay, so you have this sort of feedback here. So it's not just a matter of a debate. It also, um, this social anthropology, cognitive science, but it's also very important for understanding in terms of human evolution. The definition I'm going to use of uh, teaching comes from evolutionary biology, and it simply means that somebody modifies his or her behavior uh, for the benefit of another to learn a particular skill or particular knowledge. Okay, there are are many definitions of teaching out there that include a theory of mind. I'm not using that particular definition in terms of uh, teaching. So basically, uh, Kim Bard asked us to make some naturalistic videos of uh, one, one-year-olds in the field, so I did that, and I, so I have 10 hours of video of infants that I made, and then I'm reanalyzing these 10 hours of videos in terms of trying to un- understand whether or not there's any evidence of any type of teaching, okay? And the first one here is that 70% of the tapes 
have evidence of natural pedagogy as defined by Girgley and Sebra. And again, natural pedagogy is when you're using pointing to draw attention to something for an infant. So, so a very important task among the Akas to take wild yams out of uh, wild yams out of the out of the uh, forest. So you have a girl here with a knife, little girl, one year old. The dad's pointing to a particular rock, being an example of a yam. He's doing a little bit of demonstration. What's really amazing I like about this sort of thing is you have a two and a half year old who also seems to know natural pedagogy. <laughs> okay. But the idea is to learn to extract, okay? To learn to extract. So another type of teaching, natural pedagogy is just one type of teaching defined by Girgley and Sebra. Uh, another one that I um, sort of define is called opportunity. Opportunity scaffolding. This is when an infant. Here, we're, again, you got to remember this is a one-year-old. I don't know if you've been, you know, have one-year-olds doing this kind of thing where you give a one-year-old a knife or a machete, um, and then you sit on the side. Okay. So this mother here has given uh, the infant a knife. The mother gave the infant a knife. The infant's cutting some kernels off the corn. And then comes around and sort of modifies her behavior to help the learning of the infant. Uh, another type, in terms of teaching, that we that's really un, that's really we could not measure. But the Aka and, and many hunter gatherers turn their infants out as soon as they put down. They're facing out towards others, and so you do not have. As Kim mentioned, this is very much face-to-face interaction with the caregiver, but you have lots of face-to-face interaction with others in the camp. Uh, there are certain things you do not find uh, very often. Verbal instruction is minimal uh, in teaching, infant teaching. You do not, the, the Aka here do not have mother ease. We say it's a human universal, but you do not find it with the Aka. So in summary, teaching occurs okay, regularly in infancy. Um, in at least 100 gatherers. Uh, you have various types, and it's used to transmit a broad range of skills. It's not just, it's not just machetes and knives. They're, they're how to hold a baby. A variety of other skills are also transmitted. Uh, teaching is often low-cost and opportunistic, and in infancy, they're mostly genetically related to the infant. And acknowledgments. Thank you. So the, the, the setup before me has already prepared you for, for where I'm going to start here. This, this is a Hadza couple and their youngest child. And I don't know whether it was true before you walked into this room, but uh, for a lot of people, the view that they have of what happened that was special in our lineage was the construction of 
of the nuclear family in which we had dads um, supporting moms and offspring and a whole bunch of other things followed from that sexual division of labor. And other people have already prepared you for the argument I'm going to make, although we kind of have dueling models here, to say we're, we're leaving out an important part of the story if we don't include this very important person. So that uh, woman is the grandmother of the baby at the center, and that's, that's the older sister of the baby. These are modern people. That's all we've got left, you know, is us moderns. But these are people who are foraging for a living, living on wild food in, in an environment that, that's the best modern analog we have for the one that our genus evolved in. And I'm going to put on the table uh, some reasons to really uh, think that actually what this woman, grandmother, contributes to child rearing is central to what's happened in our lineage. But not only her contributions to child rearing, but her contributions to our life history that have made relationships outside this family unit really critical, including these other guys. So there are other Hadza men and the relationship between the, the central hunter in the picture here and those other men uh, turns out to be a really important part of how he thinks about his life and how he spends his time and how child-rearing works in uh, communities like this. And in fact, I would say not only in traditional socioecologies, but some of these things I think will start to seem familiar. Now, when, when I, when we started this project with the Hadza, my collaborators, Jim O'Connell and, and Nick Blurton-Jones, um, started studying the behavioral ecology of these, these people who live in, in northern Tanzania. I didn't have grandmothers on my mind, neither did they. One of the reasons that we were especially interested in, in this ethnographic opportunity is that the, the archaeological record of our genus if we get very early in time, in fact, the beginning of the archaeological record is the bones of big animals and stone tools. And these guys hunt these big animals. So figuring out how that works, and how those animals are handled, how uh, deposition patterns are produced, was especially an interest of Jim O'Connell, who was the archaeologist on the team. And yet, there we were, looking at how people spent their time, what they got for it, and here were these old women... Uh, so the, the women that I'm showing there in their 60s when this photograph was taken, and because we were monitoring how people spent their time and what they got for it, there it was in the data that economic productivity of these old women was really floating the boat in a way that we just had not anticipated. We were also astonished to discover that little kids were amazingly productive foragers at, at very young ages. But those, those tubers that the old ladies are cooking there are the starch staple for this population throughout the year. And digging them is something that it takes adult strength and, and, and sort of engineering skill to manage. Maybe not quite adult strength, but little kids who are just weaned can't do it. And so they have to depend on somebody else. They depend on their moms, but then when their moms have new babies, then mom's attention is partly on that newborn. And, and that means that these kids' welfare, as we could measure it, depended on the work of grandmothers. And so here is, again, this woman in her 60s, you know, showing her stuff there, how complicated it is to, 
to dig these, these tubers that like to get underneath the rocky soils, and so it requires engineering and strength to do it. And this package of the role that these older women were playing in becoming especially important economically when kids were weaned, their moms could move on and have a new baby because grandmother was there to subsidize the requirements of the older kids. Putting that together with what we can see in the age structure of, of, um, of these folks, this age structure is a signature of, of our species. We, you know, we, you here, I was just reading a paper saying this again just recently that because the life expectancy is now so much longer than it was before, it's only now that people are living past 40. But here uh, is, is this, this is uh, the, just the female half of the age structure. And the, um, each of those bars is, uh, the length of the bar is the fraction of the population that's in that, in that bar. And the green bars are the women in their childbearing years. And those those, those uh, yellow bars at the top are the women who are past their fertility. This is the Hadza. We look at all kinds of other examples of human populations, and we see essentially the same thing. Even if we look at agrarian economies in, in the 19th century, they look like this. If you're lucky enough in this population, as a little Hadza girl, to make it to adulthood, you have more than a 75% chance of living past your fertility. And if we look at, a, at the standing crop, about a third of the adult women are past the childbearing years. The combination of how childbearing works and how much imp- important grandmothers are to how well kids do and their mother's ability to move on and have a new baby sooner is in striking contrast to what we see in the other great apes who are part of that radiation well, the best data for, for the other great apes are, come from chimpanzees, and there's the same kind of age structure built from a life table for the female part of the chimpanzee population. Now, if, if you're a, a little chimpanzee kid, you, if you're an infant, you depend on your mom uh, until you're weaned. And then, well, she's still an important um, figure in your life, but now you get your own lunch, and mom moves on and has, has a new baby. Well, that pattern of independent mothering and that, that there isn't anybody, uh, that, that in general, chimpanzees, apes um, in general, almost never live past their fertile years. A few very lucky ones make it, but most females die in their uh, childbearing years. Now, this suggested that this pattern of fertility and mortality that characterizes us and this pattern of child-rearing are intimately connected. And about the same time we were trying to put these pieces together, uh, Eric Charnov, a theoretical biologist, was building models of life history variation. And one of his models was about the mammals, how much variation there is across the mammals. Some live very short lives, die young, have babies fast. Some are much slower. And trying to account for why that's so, he built an optimization model to explain how natural selection would shape these things. And in his model, the thing that ran the speed of a life history was adult mortality. In his 93 book, he included this figure. Now, 
This is a figure just for the primates because the same general pattern holds for our order as it does for the mammals in general. And he was showing how if you know what adult mortality is, if you know what the average adult lifespan is, you can predict when the age of first birth will be. And he showed that that relationship held across the primates. Well, the circled point there is us. And he didn't wasn't thinking at the time, but wait a minute, that, um, hmm, that adult lifespan includes this big part in which there is no baby production. And yet that average adult lifespan is a thing that could account for why we mature so late. We have such low adult mortality. And putting all of those pieces together gave us a picture that at least made internal sense we could account for the things about our life history that distinguish us from the other living hominids, uh, that, that if, if grandmothering is, is the secret, that our postmenopausal longevity and our early weaning and our late maturity all made a coherent package in terms of, of, of Charnov's model, could also that package could account for why when our genus appears, it gets out into all these environments that no hominines have ever been in before, and maybe account for some things in the earliest archaeology. A very uh, promising collection of pieces that all seem to be going together, and yet, of course, um, you know, I still have lots of colleagues to persuade even that is something they ought to, mm, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, but of course, many people will say, could it really happen that way? And we don't have a time machine, but this is where mathematical modeling, <laughs> maybe if it doesn't come to the rescue, it becomes really important. And luckily, this uh, mathematical biologist, Peter Kim, got interested in the question. Peter built an agent-based model in which we took advantage of Charnov's work and this, the regular relationships among these pieces of life history as we look across the, the, the mammals generally, but as we look across the primates, and um, build, a, build this agent-based model in which we start out with an ape-like life history, and then we add grandmothering, and we see what happens if, if longevity can uh, mutate, what will happen. And this is what happens. On the left, you see what happens without any grandmothering. So this is time passing on the, on the x-axis. On the y is average adult lifespan. And on the left, there's no grandmothering. The average adult lifespan of all the lineages that don't go extinct remains in that ape-like range. There are seven that move up to get slightly longer, but they actually go extinct. And what's happening there is a, a conflict between the sexes. The, the, the males are trying to push for greater longevity that actually the females can't support. If we add grandmothering then, so look on the right, that's 30 simulations with grandmothering. And what happens in 21 out of the 30, as you see there, is they move from that ape-like equilibrium to the human-like one. There's a 20-second one that's maybe on its way there. But what, what this shows is, at least with the assumptions in the model, there are two equilibria, the ape-like one and the human-like one. And grandmothering is the thing that drives the show between them. And once you start in that direction, you end up at the human-like equilibrium.
So, so those pieces all go together. Grandmothering, at least by this argument, causes the kind of life history that we have. But there's more to the story. It's also the case that we're looking at this change in age structure, of course, not just on the female side, but on the males as well. So now, once again, using the Hadza to represent humans and chimpanzees and the same sources for, for these numbers, uh, fertility ends at essentially the same age in us as, as in chimpanzees. It's just that it's rare for a chimpanzee female to live that long. But as you can see there, not only if we just look at uh, fertile adult sex ratio, those, those uh, chimpanzee males are, are dying really fast. In, in the human case, male survival is much higher, and also males continue to survive to these older ages, and the females who are fertile are still the ones who are under the age of 45. And what that means, all those old guys are ahead of the game for the young guys coming in, competing for the same um, conceptions. And if we just look at operational sex ratio, so now we've added interbirth interval into the story, those are four of the examples in which um, we go from a, a, an ape-like longevity to a human-like one. And what happens in every case is the operational sex ratio favoring males triples. This, the, the operational sex ratio becomes much more male-biased. And more male-biased sex ratios, as behavioral ecologists know, looking at all kinds of animals, increase the advantages for mate guarding. Now, in, in, in animals like us, Male alliances are really critical. Relationships between males and the other males become really crucial to whether or not uh, a male can effectively make claims on a female. Cultural anthropologists have been talking about this across human socioecologies for a long time. And recently, Lars Radsev has, has um, tried to remind primatologists, <laughs> this is a true thing about, about human social arrangements, that these relationships among the males within a community are really crucial to what happens within nuclear families. In the 80s, there were uh, uh, the development of models by, by people like um, Michelle Rosaldo and Jane Collier, and here is a quote from Jane Collier's 88 book, looking at what happens with marriage in the simplest human societies. Marriage is primarily a relationship between men with respect to women. Conjugal bonds and their character and what goes on at home depends on what's going on out there. And the relationship that this guy has with his bros really affects how he behaves at home. That matters. It's a huge thing in Hadza communities. A man has to compete for his social standing. He has to demonstrate that he's valuable as an ally. And dangerous as a competitor, and that draws his effort into public activities, and it draws him away from domestic effort. Now, what men do in this, in this society is hunt. They also collect vegetable food, of course, but when they're hunting, there are lots of small animals in this environment. They could spend a lot of time taking those. If they did, they could, those animals would mostly, when they brought them home, go to their wives and kids. Instead, 
they focus their attention on hunting the big animals. And because they do, it means that they fail almost every day. On average, it takes a month of hunting to get one of those big ones. And actually, the difference between good and poor hunters is, you know, enormous. And when one of those big animals is taken, all kinds of other men join in the, the tracking. They, they come to the kill site. Everybody comes to the kill site. They eat there, women, children, men. They carry away meat from the, this enormous public event that everybody's been participating in. And um, the fraction that ends up going to the wife and kids is a small one, and rarely at that. So there's, the, there's a way these pieces go together. Grandmothers are maybe the, the key to our life history. What happens with the operational sex ratio makes mate guarding really count. Conjugal bonds are in tension with male alliances. And um, this relationship that men have with other men affects the way they spend their time, drawing public effort away from domestic effort. And the, these, these rare big game successes are a big deal, most going to somebody else. That, su- that stuff that goes to somebody else is subsidizing the, the cost of children, the cost of childcare, even though it's not coming from dad. And one of the most exciting things about beginning to see the pieces this way is that there is an archaeological trace of this big game hunting. So we can put together theory, empirical data of various kinds to tell a story about what happened in our, in our genus. Thanks. Uh, So I'm going to be talking about human fathers, but I'm going to be doing it in the context of what we're calling the evolved human economy and an ecological model. And I'd like to recognize my co-authors in this talk, uh, Paul Hooper, John Stieglitz, and Mike Irvin, and our funding sponsors, the National Institute on Aging. We'll be arguing that there are three principal economic relations in foraging societies, and that this is a modal pattern, meaning that most groups show it, but not all groups. So the three principles are kin-based altruism with downward intergenerational transfers, that is, from grandparents to parents, from parents to children, and grandparents to grandchildren. That reciprocity is another economic relation based upon reducing risk of variance in day-to-day diet and in joint resource production, cooperative foraging. And that there's complementarity and specialization among the sexes in reproduction, household, and resource production. Here's a figure that's meant to diagram three generations of families. So this is the grandparental generation. This is family one of the first generation, family one of the second generation, of the third, and the different families. And these arrows are meant to characterize resource flows. And we are discussing the three types of relationships. So between husbands and wives, there's joint 
production of offspring and the household economy. And then there are downward flows with kin altruism, so the thicker arrows. There's flows in both directions of food going downward and upward. And there's also downward flows and upward flows across two generations, but always thicker going downward than upward. That is, more going downward than going upward. And these relationships are meant to characterize reciprocity. I give you today, you give me tomorrow, or we share in the products of our labor. I think that this uh, economy evolved in relation, these relations evolved in, in response to a specialized foraging niche, that humans eat high-quality, calorically dense plant and animal foods, that it's a learning-intensive foraging strategy, skill-intensive, that there are late-age peak in caloric production, and that there's gains to cooperation in production and risk reduction, and that there's high complementarity between the male and female inputs into production and reproduction. And so this gives you a feeling of what I'm talking about in terms of the kind of a diet that humans uh, eat. So this is comparing humans to chimpanzees, our closest living relative, of the three types of resources that you can eat, collected foods like leaves and fruits that are just picked off of the, the plant, extracted gathered fruits, plant foods that are like nuts and tubers that require digging or processing to get to, and hunted foods. And what we can see is, is that chimpanzees and humans are omnivores. They all eat the three types of foods, but chimpanzees are primarily eating leaves and fruits. Humans eat very almost no leaves and very little fruit, much more extracted foods, and a much greater hunted proportion of the diet. And what we're arguing is, is that as you move across these three categories, they're getting more difficult to acquire, more skill-intensive, more nutritional value to the foods, and bigger package sizes. But these biggest package sizes also create variance and create needs for sharing. So in looking at uh, how this diet links to the rest of the life history, we see some striking features of the human demography compared to chimps. So this is a curve that looks at the years of life that remain to you as a given a function of your age. So if you look at it at age zero, it's life expectancy at birth. Foragers happen to have a life expectancy on average of about 35 years. Chimpanzees at birth have about a 13 to 15 year. Well, what I want you to see here is, is that at, at the age at which reproduction begins, chimpanzees have about 15 more years of life, whereas humans have an extra 40 years of life, so that would bring them up to 55. And if they make it to the age at which reproduction ceases, on average, people have an extra 22 years of life or so remaining. And what you can see here is how particular the human stamp is. All the groups are lying on top of one another compared to the chimpanzees. And we've even put in Sweden in the 18th century here, and they fall right in the middle of the hunter-gatherers and the forager horticulturalists, suggesting that this long lifespan is a characteristic feature of our species. And it turns out that if you take the density of deaths and you say, for all adults, 
how many deaths occur at this age, at this age, at this age. And we see a peak density of deaths occurring right at about age 70 in the traditional groups. It's moved over to the late 80s in modern society. But it's, it is interesting when we think about a 35-year life expectancy that the highest density of adult deaths is still at age 70. And that's because most of that early death is infancy, and so that lowers life expectancy. Now, this is a, uh, a graph of age-specific caloric production and caloric production. So these, these two graphs here, they're, they're, on my computer, they're dashed, are the consumption by age. So by age 18, you're in the 2,000 calorie range. This is males and this is females. And these lines are their production. This is for the Tsimane, but we've seen very similar curves for the Ache, the Hiwi, the Kung, the Hansa, the Machigenga, and Piero. What's most variable is the female production curve. But what you can see is that there's a big caloric deficit in early ages and a caloric surplus in older ages. And if you net them out, this is what it looks like in net. So you're getting more expensive as you're growing. And then you cross over at around age 20, and then you're a net producer the rest of your life. Now, in terms of looking at the complementarity between the male and the female inputs in the human case, we have a primate commitment to carrying infants in intensive maternal care. We heard a lot about that already. And there's an incompatibility of care and hunting because it's very dangerous to be chasing live animals. And the protein and fat in game complement carbohydrate-rich plant foods. And so what we end up seeing is specialization and alternative skill trajectories of men and women. And that what the females give in the way of childcare and gathered products complements what the males are giving in the way of hunted protein and fat products. So what we're talking about in terms of the skill intensiveness of the human foraging niche can be seen in, in this graph that was done by Rob Walker, Kim Hill, and myself in which we looked at physical strength plotted on this graph by age. And as you could see, men are reaching their peak strength in their early 20s. And then this is their hunting return rate. That is the amount of calories of meat that they get for every hour they spend. And at age 20, their poultry, 25% as good as they're going to be when they're in middle age. What I did was to try to think about this as a contrary to fact experiment, a thought experiment. I asked, well, why don't women hunt and why don't men gather? Well, what would, they, what would happen if women hunted? If we make the assumption that women can't hunt when they're really pregnant and they're lactating a young baby, but when they're not really pregnant and they're not lactating, they could hunt, how much practice would they get, and how, would, how much would they get if they compare that to, to gathering? So this is, the, this is taking the ache and doing the, this is the real for women, and this is the hypothetical if they hunted, this is the real for men, and this is the hypothetical 
for gathering. And this is the cumulative calories net after consuming all of their own caloric needs that they would produce over life. Because the Aceh women are spending so much of their time in childcare, they're actually not producing enough to feed themselves, so they're becoming increasingly costly uh, calorically as they age, but less so by gathering. And ironically for the men, it goes the other direction. And this is because when you do learn how to hunt, and after a while, you can get very good at it. So when we sum all of this up, and we look at the percent food contributions, so this is taking the 10 societies for which we can quantify the daily caloric production of individuals. And uh, in 2001, uh, we calculated that on average, and there's quite a bit of variability across foraging societies, men are acquiring about two-thirds of, of the calories and most of the protein. But when you sum out what the women are eating for themselves, almost all of the food energy, extra food energy, is being produced by the men. Now, as I pointed out in the bottom of that other figure, is that women are spending a huge amount of time in childcare. And here is data from the Chimane, in which we're looking at who's, who are the different caretakers of the kids. And moms are doing the, the bulk of the caretaking in the Chimane. I think this is pretty cross-culturally variable how much other allo parents help. But there's no question that it's mom who's doing the bulk of it. And then when you add the fact that women are helping with the food processing, They're, the men and the women are each contributing different ne necessary components of the reproductive and the productive economy. And as a result, it looks like uh, polygyny is relatively uncommon in foraging societies, that in almost 50% of the societies, less than 5% of marriages are polygynous, but if you sum this all up, most of the marriages in hunter-gatherer societies are monogamous. Now, this is a figure that we've put together that takes regression models and looks at who, who shared with who as a function of uh, their, their age and their relationship to one another. So this, this actually measures, in the Tumane, the food flows going up and going down. As you can see, they're going in both directions. This side nets it all out so that you can see it more clearly. And what I want you to get out of this figure is, is that almost all of the net arrows are going downward across the generations. And the one exception is one arrow going from adult men to their uh, in-laws, but that then is being got, brought down to the in-laws' kids, and so in, in, on net, it's still a downward process, and we're seeing the flows going from men to women, men to women, uh, in, in the same generation, and this is not to say that men are more productive than women, it's to say that they are helping women do the other tasks in life by providing the net 
calories. Now, another thing that we found is that while it's true that men can continue to reproduce into old age, most men don't. In fact, most men have effective behavioral menopause because they, when their wife goes through menopause, they don't have any more kids. This is for the Tsumane. So 90% of men did not reproduce after, again after their wife went through menopause. Some, those who did, were polygynously married. There were a few who did it for other reasons as well. And we found a very similar pattern for Ache forages where about... 80-some-odd percent didn't reproduce again after their wife went through menopause. Now, this graph looks at, for the Tsumane, the flows from mom to children, from dad to children, from grandma to grandchildren, from grandpa to grandchildren, and from husband to wife. And the biggest flows, as we saw from the other figure, are from father, which is peaking out at around 3,000 calories to his children per day. And it's dropping as they're getting older. And, and then he starts to pick up and starts to give to grandchildren the dotted blue line and has a peak in, in the 60s and then drops down again. Here is the women with the same similar age peak, just lower and a similar age peak for the grandchildren in the food transfers. What you can see here is that at about age 70 is when people no longer have net transfers downward. This is when they're reaching the age at which they can just basically produce what they can consume through aging. And here's a way of looking at how these two things may be linked together. So here are the expected number of descendants based upon a normal family growth pattern uh, for hunter-gatherers that you'd have a, your peak number of dependent kids in your 30s, and then your peak number of dependent grandchildren are going to be in your 60s. And what we're seeing here is, is that it's just as this is going down, we're really seeing the, this is the mortality curve, the risk of instantaneous risk of mortality. And it stays really quite low until about age 60, and that's where we see the really big acceleration. So to conclude, I would say that uh, humans have a unique species typical economy, that's based on an ecological niche characterized by a learning-intensive food acquisition strategy, uh, a life history strategy of high parental investment, high rates of juvenile and adult survival, and a long lifespan, and that the economy is organized by three principles, kin-based altruism in downward intergenerational transfers, reciprocity and cooperative production among unrelated individuals, and complementarity and specialization by sex in joint production and re reproduction, and that men, as fathers and grandfathers, acquire energy to support wives, children, and grandchildren, while women engage in a mix of energy production, processing, 
and childcare, and that most marriages are monogamous among foragers, and it appears as if most men cease to reproduce when their wives reach menopause. And lastly, I've been talking in very broad strokes here, generalizing among foraging groups based upon data, but there is a great deal of variation, especially when you look at the full breadth of the ethnographic literature. And I would offer the suggestion that variations away from this modal pattern are going to be due to differences in age profiles of production. So when children are more productive, there'll be less downward flows. There are going to be factors that would affect how much men can really make a difference to women and their children, and that's going to cause ecological variation. And again, the gains from cooperation are going to vary from place to place. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.